Isaiah chapter 12. A chapter of comfort and great joy. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nathaniel. One of the things that I hope will always be true of my life is that I never stopped, that I never stop being amazed at God's word. Just, I just hope that I will never stop being amazed that it is a life-giving, powerful, living, active word, and it is fresh, filled with mercy every morning. Um, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, and I, just, I, I don't ever want to stop being amazed. I think this is especially challenging for pastors because we're in the Bible all the time. And it's also challenging for you. I don't ever want to stop being amazed by the Word of God. And the amazement happened to me again this week. I've been reading the Bible for a long time. I don't think I've ever seen this. That, certainly not as clearly as now, that the prophets sing. Prophets don't sing. The prophets aren't supposed to sing. They're, they're the preachers of the Old Testament, right? Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the rest of the prophets, they, they are the, they're the speakers of judgment. They preach. They weep. They stand alone. They speak for God when His people will not hear Him and are unwilling. Um, they're preachers. What do they know about singing? Keep your day job, right? Stay in your lane, bro. You don't know anything about singing. This really struck me this week. Isaiah knows something about singing. He knows something about who God is and who I am and who you are and how much you need a song. Isaiah understood that. He understood how much each of us need a song that defines us and energizes us and resonates deeply within us. Isaiah knew God well enough and man well enough to say in verse 3, the Lord is my song. He's not merely the theme of my song. 
He's not the subject only of what I sing about. He's the conductor. He's the producer. He's the studio. He's the vocalist. He's the instrumentation. He's the lyric. He's the melody. He's, he, Isaiah's saying, he is my song. He's the beautiful music of salvation that has been awakened inside of me. So today what I want to do as we walk through this chapter is make a case for what I think Isaiah has in mind when he says the Lord is my song. And I think he means at least three things about the beautiful music of salvation coming alive in us. Number one, it is personal. Number two, it is congregational. And number three, it is missional, going out from us. So let's walk through those, and we'll start in verses 1 and 2 with this song is personal. The song of the redeemed, that God has, has the, the music of the redeemed and the song of the redeemed that he has worked in us is personal, or it's nothing for us. Let me show you what I mean, verses 1 and 2. So let's start with the first word in the first line. You'll see that it says, Chapter 12, verse 1, you will say in that day. That's a singular you. It's one person speaking. And then in the next line, it says, I will give thanks. That's another singular person. So what we have in the first line of Isaiah 12 is a single unnamed voice who introduces an unnamed individual who then gives personal testimony to God's grace. Who do you think the most likely candidate is for, ver for chapter 12, verse 1. Who do you think is talking here? Who's the most likely candidate? Probably Isaiah. This is probably Isaiah bringing us back into his story, weaving his own story into the story of God's people. And if you think about the literary structure of Isaiah, that makes total sense because students for a long time have observed that between chapter 6 and chapter 12 of Isaiah, you've got this unit and it really holds together nicely as its own kind of it, its own unit. And it starts with Isaiah's story. Remember, um, Isaiah meeting God in his holiness and saying, woe is me. And he cries out to God and then his relationship is restored. So chapter 6 starts this segment. And chapter 12, personal story ends the segment. So what we think is happening in this chapter 6 through chapter 12 unit is that Isaiah is really helping God's people see his own place in this great story as he embodies for all of Judah what it can look like if someone will seek the Lord in repentance and faith. So here's an example. And so Isaiah comes back to what God has done. So in verse 1, he returns to God's saving work in his own life. And it's really interesting the way he says it. Look at verse one. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Some people don't have a place for anger in their theology. And yet, apart from that, you can't see the beauty of the gospel at work here. God, Isaiah says, was rightly, justifiably angry at me. But something turned away his anger. That's a little hint at how the gospel works, isn't it? 
Right? Remember from chapter 6, he's, he's feeling the wrath of God heading his way. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm, I'm lost. I'm unclean. I, I dwell among an unclean people. I, like I'm hopeless. I feel the wrath of God coming at me like a freight train. But God makes a way. And here in this verse, he returns to that same thought. But your anger turned away from me. Now, it's not as fully developed here, but it is in chapter 53 and then even more fully developed in the New Testament that the person who turned away the anger of God for us is who? Jesus, the Son of God. So that in chapter 53 of Isaiah, fast forward there if you want to, it says he was smitten by God. Like, we don't go around using that smite language. Like, I'm going to smite you, Hannah. That we don't talk that way. But what does it mean? Well, it means something like God's going to drop the hammer on his son, smitten by God, afflicted, so that he could bring us healing and cleansing. Beautiful passage in Isaiah 53. Isaiah gets, gives us a glimpse of it here in chapter 12. Well, it started in chapter 6. He gives us a glimpse of it here in chapter 12 again. Fast forward to Isaiah 53. The suffering servant's going to be the one who steps in front of that massive freight train of the anger and wrath of God for us. And then when you move forward to the New Testament, you see it very clearly explained. The apostles keep saying over and over again, he atoned for our sins. He stepped in between us and the wrath of God. He died in my place. He's our substitute. He, he paid the ransom. He paid the penalty. This is the heart of the gospel that someone else would turn God's anger away from you and take it on himself. That creates, as Nathaniel said a moment ago, this is a chapter of great joy. That creates great joy in Isaiah's heart and mind. So in verse two, he bursts out in this, like, this, this praise, behold, God is my salvation, I will trust. I will not be afraid. The Lord is my strength, and he's my song. Like, God has put a song inside of me because of this. There are four uh, characteristics of those who are experiencing salvation in verse 2. Walk through verse 2 with me. There's four distinct characteristics of, of what's happening to a person when grace awakens in them. I want to show them to you as we have time, all right? Walk through this with me. Number one. The exercise of faith or trust. Do you see that? I will trust. I will trust in the Lord. My deepest security, my deepest reliability, my most certain hope is in the Lord. Those who are experiencing salvation say, I will trust in the Lord, which leads to the removal of fear. That's the second thing. I will not be afraid. And think about this. In Isaiah's context, as he himself is speaking of the judgment of God that's gonna come on the people who belong, uh, that, he, that he belongs to, like he stands and lives among a people who are about to experience God's judgment, that's big. That's intimidating. For him and for God's people, I will not fear. In our own political moment, in our own cultural season here, between COVID and elections and transitions of power 
This is big. We're seeing what we all trust in right now. And the fear of the unknown that you feel. And some, and some will even say, well, I'm just a worrier. I'm just a worrier. Uh, 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 and and, 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 and Stop saying that. I'm just a worrier. Nobody gets a pass on this one. I will trust in the Lord and I will not be afraid of what's going to happen to this country, of what's going to happen to us as God's people, of what's going to happen to me and my family. I will not fear. Learn to say with Isaiah, I will not be a slave to fear. Here's the third thing, the infusion of strength. Look at this. I will trust, I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength. He's my durability. He's my endurability. He's my perseverance. He's my rock, he's my salvation, he's my fortress, he's my protection. I can hide in him, he is my strength. And then fourth, you already know where it is, right? Because that's what we're talking about today. What's the fourth one? He's my song. The Lord is the song I've been listening for for my whole life. I've been waiting for this song for my whole life. The Lord is my song. Just like, so here's the way the analogy works. Just like one of your favorite songs from the 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s or 2000, I don't know. Trent, help me out here. I don't know what your favorite song is, but just like your favorite song takes you back to a great memory, so the Lord God wants to be the defining music that resonates in your soul for your whole entire life, not just a great season or a great summer or a great relationship that that song takes you back to. God wants to be the defining music that resonates deep within you So the Lord is my song means something like this. The music of God's grace has come alive to me. It means, let me give you a little picture. It means something like this. That God stepped into the dark, abandoned theater of your soul, pulled back the dusty curtains, swept off the platform, and stood up with a baton and the whole orchestra and symphony of life began to respond to him. And music came alive inside of you. You're like, oh, that's what life is all about? That's what grace is? That's the salvation they keep talking about? The song that, is, uh, that, that Isaiah is singing here, the, the meaning of the Lord is my song is, is, is that God has done something rich and powerful that resonates deeply within you, and you'll never be the same. So let the redeemed of the Lord say so, right? That was your chance to say amen, Carmen. That's the first thing happening here. Here's the second. This song is is congregational. It's congregational. And by that, I don't mean that each person separately experiences grace and then shows up in the same room. I do think that happens in a lot of places. That happens 
in a lot of communities, faith communities. And of course, we hope that everybody experiences grace individually and then does show up in the same room, but that's not what I'm talking about here. It's more than that. I think Isaiah is describing some kind of real-time shared experience of grace. Listen to this in verses three through six. Uh, With joy, you all will draw water from the wells of salvation and you all will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds, sing and shout and sing for joy. There, one, one author put it this way, to enter salvation is an individual experience. Yes, to enter salvation is an individual experience, but to enjoy it is communal. To enjoy it is to share it. It's passages like this that remind us that sharing is not just something we learn to do in preschool, but that it is something that defines our experience of grace. Grace shared is what's being described. There are at least two clues in the text as to why I'm saying what I'm saying. The first is that he changes to the plural. Look at verse three. With joy, you all, right? This is a plural you. So he's moved from the singular to the plural. He's talking about a group of people. Clearly in verse three, he has transitioned to a group of people. He says, you all will do this and you all will say. So the language of the text points us there, but then the imagery of the text points us there, the wells of salvation. Look at this. I love this. This is my favorite part. Come to the well, Isaiah says. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is, a imagery, this is imagery of, of a shared experience of grace. The well is where you get fresh water every day. The well is where the community comes. So, so there weren't 25 different wells in any community. In Bible times, uh, any given community wouldn't have 25 different wells, right? There would be one or two wells and everybody would go to the same well. The well is where people learn to gather and share this life-giving, life-sustaining thing called water. Um, you, you You didn't just show up to the well and say, this is my well, this is all my water, and you don't, you don't share it with anybody else in the community. That's not the way it works. You couldn't live in society that back then like that. There's no way. In the same way, God's grace is amazingly corporate. It's amazingly communal. It's amazingly, uh, so, so think about the image of a well for just a moment. God's grace is fresh. Every single day we return to the well. Every day. Fresh water. You don't want to drink water that's been sitting in that whatever filter, Brita filter thing you got. Brita, am I saying that right? Is there such a thing as a water filter, a Brita container? You don't want to drink stuff that's been sitting there for three weeks. What do you want? Fresh water. The well is fresh. It's deep. It's bottomless. It never runs dry. You know, people are coming to the well and, and it's deep and it's bottomless and it never runs dry and people are starting to line up and you say, well, the crowd's getting a little bit too long. I don't know if there's enough of this to go around. Oh, there's enough. There's enough of God's grace 
and it never runs dry. That's, what's, that's the point of this image, that it is deep and bottomless and life-giving and, and sustaining. Here's one other thing. It's provided for us. Imagine how many families went to Jacob's well prior to the Samaritan woman. For hundreds of years, people would go to this well and they did not show up and say, man, I sure worked hard and dug this hole and I get to drink from this water. No, it was provided for them. And so this beautiful well of God's grace, is pro- our, our, our salvation is provided for us. It's a shared experience. Don't be afraid to meet someone at the well. Don't be afraid to show up thirsty. Don't be afraid to sing when you taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't be afraid to voice that. That's what Isaiah is making a case for here. Voice in testimony that God's grace has been sweet to you. Singing is one of the most important ways to voice the song has come alive in your heart. It's not the only way. It's one of the most important. I want to talk to 15 and 16-year-old boys for just a second and to 40 and 50-year-old men who never process this either. It's, so back to the 15 and 16-year-olds, but stay connected. I'm talking to guys primarily just for a second. I'm sure it's true of ladies too, but not to the same degree, I don't think. So 15 and 16-year-old teenage boy, teenage young man, um, I know there's something inside of you that says it's not cool to sing in church. I know that. I totally get that. But I wish someone had told me when I was 16 that I could discover a transcendent experience through something other than an ACDC concert. Seriously. Because you're going to get it one way or the other. You were made. All right, so 15, 16, 17-year-old young men, are you with me? Just hang in there for a second. You were made to sing. You were made to sing. And that's why music is so powerful in your life. But it's just not cool to sing in church. And I totally get that. I totally understand that. But something will happen to you if you experience God's grace. You'll be less concerned about what everybody else thinks. You'll be less concerned about who's watching and whether or not you're singing it right. And the song of God's love and mercy toward you, will, will, it'll just kind of want to come out if you've experienced God's saving grace. As you voice your testimony... You are lowering the bucket down into the well. And your 16 or 17-year-old friend who finds out that you have a song in your heart, it's going to splash on him. It's going to get out there. God's going to use the freedom with which you sing. Wouldn't it be amazing if some of our young men who are seriously considering the gospel right now found the song of Christ 
and we're able to voice. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if Kylan was not just on the drums, but the drums were alive in him, or that other young men who are, who are in our church and who are worshiping with us on Sunday morning, it's not, it's not just going through the motions, but like, oh, wow, the grace of God is real inside of me. It's the drumbeat of my life. That's what we're praying for and hoping for. And you might not think singing is cool or real, important, uh, important for you. Well, it's for the other people. It's for the adults. Singing is for the adults. It's for the rest of the people at church. Um, maybe when I grow up and stop playing video games in my parents' basement, I'll learn to sing. Learn to sing now. Learn to sing now. Ask God to tap that well of salvation. And don't be afraid to sing. Here's the third thing. This song is missional. Everything about Christianity is designed to move you outside of yourself. To give yourself away. To spend your life on others. It's amazing to me how much unity there is in the Bible because we keep learning this over and over again. We hear it in Genesis. We learn about the blessing to all nations in Genesis. We learn about the blessing to all nations in the Psalms. We learn about the blessing to all nations through the kingdom and through King David and his ministry. And Isaiah is saying the same thing that the whole Bible keeps telling us over and over again and that Jesus himself says that the gospel is for all people, for all nations. Here's what he says. Isaiah says, make known his deeds among the peoples, verse 4. And then, verse 5, let his, let his glory be, be known in all the earth. This is, again, the outworking of what started in chapter 6. Remember, his personal story in chapter 6. He experiences salvation. He is restored in relationship. Then he says, then the voice of the Lord says, will someone speak for us? And Isaiah says what? I'll go. Grace is real to me. Most restored relationship with God is real to me. I will go. Send me. Here I am. Send me. And now he's building this out for all of God's people, not just for himself. He says in that day, there will be a day, there's coming a time when God's people will go to the ends of the earth with the same gospel message. Look at this, verses five and six. With joy you will draw, I'm sorry, sing praises, verse five, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. The glory of God is for all people. The beautiful music of salvation is missional. Singing praise to the Lord means that worship, worship is what fuels our desire to take the gospel to other people. Think about that. John Piper's been reminding us that uh, for years, that worship is the fuel of mission, that worship is what energizes. So singing, praising, shouting for joy, giving testimony, uh, gathering and celebrating with God, it fuels us to go out and take the gospel to others. Missions exist because worship doesn't. 
And worship beautifully and amazingly fuels a heart for mission. It's a beautiful circle. And this is why we have a missions endowment. The reason we have a missions endowment is because we want to line our theology up with, with our money. We want to give for the sake of the nations that people might believe. This is why we're so interested in church planting. It's why we love the Chinese fellowship and want, uh, want them to step further and further into our whole church family. Um, this is why if you are an international and you have been visiting our church or if you're a member of our church and your, your uh, ethnicity is not American or Caucasian, uh, this is why it's so important for us to keep worshiping together. I, if you are an international, I understand that it is challenging to live in a predominantly white context and attend a predominantly white church. I understand that that's challenging, but we need you. We need the beauty of the gospel that is put on display when we embody in our own local church the beauty of mission, that the gospel's for all people, red and yellow, black and white, precious in his sight. So we go on mission because people all over the world do not yet know the song. And people in our own communities don't yet know the song. That's why we go on mission. And that's what Isaiah is, is, is modeling for us here. Man, take, take the gospel to the nations, he's saying. He's saying take the gospel to the nations. I, I think it's, it's I was talking to Pastor Allen about this. I think it's more than a coincidence. Listen to this. I think it's more than a coincidence that, that none, it's more than a coincidence that none of the major world religions, you know, outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition, none of the major world religions, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shinto, none of them have a place for song in worship. They don't have a place for the singing of the joy of the salvation that's been wrought in the human heart. I think that's more than a coincidence. I think it's one of the amazing distinctives of Christianity that saving grace puts a song inside of you. And you purposefully gather week in and week out with other people who sing the same song and delight in what God is doing. Revelation 5.9 says this. This is the song of the redeemed. This is the song is missional. Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song. The elders, uh, the 24 elders in Revelation 9 and the four living creatures, they tune up their harps and they get out the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to the Lamb. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people. You redeemed a people. It's the song of the redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made a kingdom of priests. This is the song of the redeemed. This is why we take the gospel to all people. Because they do not yet know the song. And... Because taking the gospel to others is what will keep the gospel alive in you. 
you know, it's counterintuitive. You would think if you give it away, you, you don't get to keep it. But in the economy of God, the more you give away, the more you get to keep. And it's especially true of deepening your understanding of grace. So when you go missional with your life, when you say, here am I, send me, whether it's to be a deacon or whether it's to be a Bible study teacher or plant a new community group or go plant a new church or go to the international mission field or whatever it is, but when you come to God with true humility and say, here I am, send me. I don't know where you're going to take me. I don't know what you want to do with my life, but here I am, send me. When you tap that, man, you're tapping the grace of God. Telling your story, taking grace and the gospel hope to those who do not yet know, I promise you it will keep it active inside of you. It'll keep it alive. You say, well, I can keep, I can keep the word alive. I can keep grace alive. I can keep the gospel alive in my life through my daily devotions. And that's partly true. But nothing activates the love of God in your own heart and soul than when you voice it to someone else. When you sing it, when you give testimony, or just simply when you go for the express purpose of serving to kind of become a bridge for the gospel. There's a lot more we could say about the song being missional. Stay tuned. I think when Pastor Allen gets to Isaiah 19, um, if that's the right chapter. Is that the missions chapter? I, I feel like it is, so I don't know. It's coming soon to a Bible study near you. All right, the Lord is my song means that God himself is the music that has come alive in me. It's deeply personal. It is joyfully congregational. It's a shared experience. And finally, it is lovingly missional. We're going to turn our hearts to communion, and to do that, I want you to look at verse 6, and we'll close. And then Pastor Chip is going to come and lead us to the table. He's going to lead us to the well. The table is the well this morning. So he's going to take us there in just a second. But look at verse 6. Shout and sing, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God is pleased to be present among his people when they gather in worship he is the holy one let that prepare your hearts for communion